Our scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 9, and out of reverence for the gospel word, I invite you to stand as you're able. Hear now these words. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the Beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Friends, I've always viewed the transfiguration of Jesus as a pretty weird scene. Um, Really hard to fathom what's happening. Uh, When I think of the idea of transfiguration, I, for some reason, immediately think of the scene in Beauty and the Beast when Beast turns back into a man. He's transfigured. And I also think of like Harry Potter's transfiguration class when they turn an animal into a goblet. Like that's what I think of as transfiguration. It's magic. Uh, I have memories when I was young of asking my dad, who is a pastor, what the transfiguration meant. Um, And he didn't say it was magic or that it had anything to do um, with Disney. But he did say that, he said this, it's a mystery. Thanks, Dad. (laughs) Um, No, he he said, it is a mystery. No one really knows what this scene is or, or what Jesus became at that moment. But we do know two things. He said, we do know it's a response, one, to a protest, and two, it's a glimpse into the future. Let me explain. In chapter 8, just prior, after Jesus feeds 4,000 people with a few fish, he heals a blind man, and then he goes up to Caesarea Philippi, which is at the very north of modern-day Israel, and asks his disciples this question, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter is always the first to respond. He very confidently says, I'll tell you who you are. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And then Jesus proceeds to tell them about the suffering and death that is in store for him, that's coming. He shares word for word what's coming his way. And Peter, again, always a hothead, always first to say something, grabs Jesus and he protests. He says, this can't be. We won't let you go this way. Don't talk like that. We'll protect you. It makes sense from the guy who who just a few scenes later in, in the Gospel of John will try to protect Jesus from his arresters. Do you remember? taking a sword and slicing an ear off a guy. That was a weird way to say that. That's when Jesus exclaims that phrase, get behind me, who? Satan. And he then calls out to the crowd, but we all know he's saying these things really to Peter. He calls out to the crowd, if you are going to follow me, then follow me. If you're going to say it, then do it. And let me lead. Indeed, the kingdom is coming the day... He's coming when the world shall see what I'm talking about. The world's going to witness true glory, the splendor of God, an army of angels, the Son of Man. And not a week later, Mark says, they see a glimpse of what Jesus is talking about. 
And all of it occurs when they climb the mountain and three disciples have this kind of mountaintop experience. I don't know, have you ever had something like that? Have you ever had something you've referred to that's a mountaintop experience? A, a, a moment between you and God that changed you? One of the spiritual moments that seared into your memory? It's interesting, in, in film, in literature, in our cultural stories, whenever there's a mountain, something big is happening. Something that's going to change the course of history. My favorite Marvel movie to this day is Iron Man. And if you remember that story, Iron Man, Tony Stark is a weapons manufacturer. And then he's injured by the very weapons he, he creates. And so he creates this first, his first prototype of this Iron Man suit, all while going, under, go, going about this deep philosophical change about how he sees his life going. And it all happens while he's captured and taken to the mountains of Afghanistan. It's in the mountains. The mountains are present in the Lord of the Rings. Throughout and at the end of the, the story, Frodo contends with the destruction of the ultimate evil, which has to occur at Mount Doom in the, in the mountains of Mordor. And such an experience transforms him in the process. In the movie Frozen, this is the third time I've quoted this in like recent days, in Frozen, Elsa sings her epic song, Let It Go, everybody knows it, and finally allows herself to become who she is in the mountains of Arendelle. She, she runs and becomes who she's supposed to be. Authors and filmmakers love to have big moments set near or on or in the mountains. Scripture's no different. Exodus 19 and 20, God descends on Mount Sinai in fire and thunder to meet Moses and share the Ten Commandments. Y'all are good today. 1 Kings 19, God meets Elijah on a mountain in a gentle whisper and offers renewal and strength. Zechariah 14, Zechariah is given a prophecy that one day God will descend upon the Mount of Olives, a mountain, and establish justice and the reign of God's kingdom. Which is actually, I think, one reason why you see graves upon graves right now on, present, on the present day Mount of Olives, because I think people want to be close to the action. They take it seriously. God loves a mountaintop. And more often than not, mountaintop moments are these transitional experiences. They're important moments in which God introduces a change that has consequences for the future. So, Jesus and his three buddies go up to the mountaintop, and we're told that while there, Jesus is transfigured. The Greek there is metamorpho, where we get the word metamorphosis. What does that mean? It means Jesus looks different. It means his form changes, his clothes shimmer. In Luke's version, the appearance of his face is altered. It's different. And not only that, but Moses and Elijah are there. These two super legendary figures in the Hebrew faith, they're right there with Jesus. And the disciples are amazed. They can't believe what's happening, what they're being allowed to see. Talk about a mountaintop experience. And naturally, when they experience something like this, whenever we experience some kind of mountaintop moment, we want to keep experiencing that. Whenever human beings have this mountaintop moment, we, we want to figure out how to keep that feeling. We try to figure out how, how we can experience that same thing again and again and again. That's exactly what Peter wants to do. He wants to build them each a place on the ground to keep them right here, to maintain that experience. Poet Jan Richardson writes a poem called Dazzling about this experience. And she writes, we could build walls around this blessing, put a roof over it. We could bring in a table and chairs, have the most amazing meals. We could make a home. We could stay. Peter's outlook reminds me of the title of one of my favorite bands, Nickel Creek. Their second album is called, Why Should the Fire Die? 
Peter doesn't want fire to die. He wants to nail down this experience so that he can experience it again, but it doesn't happen. And then, responding to, to Peter's previous protest that we just spoke about from chapter 8, he hears loud echoes on the mountaintop. This is my son, marked by my love, the beloved. Listen to him. In other words, God is saying, this is it. This is the Christ. The kingdom is coming. This is my guy. Hear him when he says these things. Don't brush it off. Trust me. Elijah and Moses, they're right here, but he is greater. So you disciples and Peter, listen to him and trust him. But the transfiguration is not simply an answer to a dialogue, to a fight between Jesus and Peter. It's much more than that to me. Because for me, the climax of the story is not when God speaks. It's it's the actual changing part. The transfiguration, the metamorphosis, the actual change that Jesus undergoes. Now, we said it before. This story is is really wild and weird. Some scholars think, think it's so out there that Mark might have accidentally put it in the wrong spot. Some scholars think this actually happened after the resurrection. It sounds more like that kind of moment. And and Mark just forgot where it needed to go. (laughs) I mean, honestly, the Jesus we find here is a lot like that post-resurrection Jesus. I mean, it sort of makes sense on one level. Jesus was different after the resurrection. His form was not quite the same as it was before. It was new. It was different. And it's true that transfiguration Jesus and post-resurrection Jesus share a lot in common. But honestly, I think it's in the right place. I really do. Because it seems to have a pre-resurrection purpose. And its purpose is to give us a glimpse of what the future form, the future glory will look like. One of my favorite scholars, you hear me quote him a lot, Leslie Weatherhead, one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. He used to get in discussions about Jesus' divinity and humanity. As Christians, it's, it's pretty much essential doctrine that we all think Jesus is 100% human and 100% divine, but we don't really know what that means all the time. It's really hard to wrap your mind around that, but we believe it. It's hard to explain, though. And Weatherhead would get that question a lot, and he would answer this this way, and I think this is a pretty good answer. I don't know that this is the complete answer, but Weatherhead would say this, Jesus contained as much of God as can be poured into a man without disrupting the humanity of the man. I think that's pretty good. I like that. And you see, in the transfiguration, I believe that God gives us a glimpse, a vision of the fully realized Christ on full display. This is a vision of the future Christ of glory, of wonder and splendor. This is sitting on the throne, Jesus. And Jesus does this. He transfigures. He changes, I think, to show us what the end will be like. And in seeing the end, his purpose becomes clear. One word, hope. After all, Eugene Peterson says, hope is the activity of love that reaches into the future. I love that. Hope is the activity of love, the action of love that reaches into the future. That, to me, is the deeper meaning of the transfiguration, the metamorphosis, the change that we see in this passage. It is that Jesus already has the future in his hands. He already knows the end result, and he's willing to show us a brief glimpse. He's willing to transfigure, to transform, to change, to give us hope in all aspects of our life. Hope that the end is not the end. Hope that the hardship will not win. Hope that suffering, my suffering, your suffering, will have meaning. Hope that though we might go through hell, we will bring something back with us. 
Hope that death cannot ultimately be stronger than love. Hope. There is, I think, one more thing to be gained from this story because Jesus, I think, is doing more than simply responding to Peter. And he's doing more than just giving us a glimpse into his future for the sake of hope. I think Jesus, in this magnificent transformation and change, is giving us a glimpse into our future. I think Jesus is sharing with us that we too are going to be transfigured, that we too will undergo a transformation, that we too will change. In fact, I believe that if you're here this morning and you're seeking to follow Jesus, I think that you're already in the process of being changed. Wesley called it sanctifying grace, that process by which God is working to renew the image of God in each of us that has been there since the beginning. Paul confirms it in 2 Corinthians, and so we are transfigured much like the Messiah, our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like Him. It seems to me that in the end, Jesus is not the only one who changes. We change too. But I'm pretty sure our change process is not quite as sudden and abrupt as the transfiguration moment. Rather, I think ours will likely occur over time, over experience, over life, over trials, over joys, suffering, in low valleys, and in mountaintop experiences. Gardener and poet... uh, Lucy Shaw, she's one of my favorites of recent days. She wrote this book called Water My Soul, and she talks about this this transformation, this change. She says, I've been astonished at how God can transmute, transform experiences that we can only look at with revulsion or disappointment. And he does, he transforms them into good use. He allows us to learn from our mistakes. Just because we stumble and fall, God doesn't disqualify us, though we often have to live with the consequences of our choices. Those consequences are illuminating, providing us with wisdom and experience for the future. She says, on occasion, the Lord has had to let me hit rock bottom. In enough despair that life seemed to hold nothing of value anymore, but distressing as it was, it had a clarifying effect. She says, in the pit of desperation, I could see that many of the minor issues that had so obsessed me were just that. They were minor. That out of the grave where I had to die to those things, God was going to resurrect me. Purged, clean, and more prepared to face His priorities for me. Do you know what she's talking about? She's talking about transfiguration. Transformation. Sanctification. She's talking about God's ability to reach into our lives and to change us from the inside out. And change, unfortunately, is really hard. It's difficult. In fact, when I think about the change that God invites us into, I always think of of Scrooge's response to Jacob Marley, the ghost of Jacob Marley, who, when he invites Scrooge to go on this journey that will inevitably lead him to change, Scrooge's reply is, I think I'd rather not. (laughs) And if I'm honest, maybe it's just me, but I think sometimes I'd rather not. I don't think I'm the only one. Maybe there's two or three more in here. I think... I think that sometimes we Christians can be known more for our immovable nature than our desire to be changed. I think that happens sometimes. That happens in me. Sometimes I think that as a faith group, we would rather check a box next to Christ follower than truly be transformed by Christ. 
I see the evidence of it all the time. I see it in myself. I see it in others. I see it in the church, the big church as a whole. I see it in the American church that occasionally seems more concerned with being wrapped up and soaked in the partisan political games that are played around us all the time rather than seeking to be transfigured by the grace and love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And all the while, the world is in need of something. Do you know what the world needs? I think the world needs a savior. I believe that. I think the world needs hope and healing. I think the world needs care and compassion. I think the world needs to know that our cultural or political identifiers are surface level compared to our original identifier, that each of us is first and foremost a child of the living God, beloved by Him. And I hope that anyone who walks in those doors, I hope that everyone who walks in those doors finds exactly what they need. I hope that anyone who is in here today, I hope you find a community ready to offer those things. I hope that anybody who walks in here meets a group of people willing to say, we don't have it all together, but we sure are open and willing and ready for the Spirit of God to shift and to change and transform and transfigure us so that we might continue to look a little bit more like Jesus today and tomorrow and the next day. That, to me, is what a life of faith is, a life of faith, of following Jesus. A life lived under the lordship of Jesus Christ is one of growth. It's one of shedding the old and gaining new. A life of faith is all about not conforming to the patterns of this world, but rather being transfigured being transformed, being changed by the renewing of our minds. And we certainly don't do the changing on our own. I met with Ladon Denham, one of our members this week, and he told me, don't worry about changing anybody, only God can change people. <laughs> and that's true. But I think we can open ourselves up a bit to the Spirit. I think we do have a part to play, to unclench our fists and to hold loosely the non-essentials and have a have willing hearts and minds willing to let God guide and direct and do some transfiguring work within us for the sake of Jesus Christ in this world and for the sake of our hearts. I've got one more thing and then we'll be finished. Uh, a few weekends ago we held a, a leadership day, a leadership retreat on a Saturday morning for all of our folks that are on administrative, some of the administrative committees of our church. We do this because some of the administrative committees, you've got to learn how they work and we need some time together to teach each other how to do that. But we had a room of about 60 of us in there, of our, our church leadership, and we spent the morning dreaming about the future of the church. We spent some of the time looking back at, at the good things that had occurred and some things we can work on, but we also spent some time dreaming about the future. And I don't know about anybody else there, but for me it was a pretty mountaintop-y experience. It really was. And at the end of the morning, I asked everybody in the room to take a sticky note and write a one-word prayer. Now, when I was in youth ministry, I experienced this quite often that whenever I'd ask all the kids, who wants to pray, no hands would go up. <laughs> I don't know, maybe some of your Sunday school class, you've got your designated prayers in there. Um, but I would always be the one to pray, and I wanted to teach kids how to pray. So I just said, why don't we just come up with one word to pray, one word to offer God, whatever it is. It can be whatever you want, just one word. I try to get them to say it, teach them to pray. And, and so we did that at this retreat, and after we were done, I had everybody write their prayers. I gathered them up, and over the last couple weeks, I've been going through them. And here, I want to share some of what was written down. The, the, the question I asked them was, can you write down a one-word prayer to God for the future of this church, for the year 2024? 
And here are some of the one-word one prayers that the leadership of this church prayed for you and for Noonan First United Methodist Church. These are just a few. Some of them occurred multiple times, but here's some of them. Unity. Focus. Service. Conviction. Love. Growth. Relationships. Wisdom. Guidance. Joy. Strength, health, inclusion, thankfulness, stay united, passion, grace, peace, hope. I'm proud of the words that our leadership offered to God on behalf of this church, and what an amazing group it, it is. And I think those are great prayers. I think those are necessary. Because God knows, I know we need peace in our communities. We need unity in our churches, wisdom in our states and government, grace in our nations and guidance in the world. But I want to say this, if you're really wanting to pray for those things, if you really mean it, then do you know who God's going to use for that? Do you know who God's instruments of peace are going to be? You know who the peacemakers are going to be? Do you know who he's going to call to be the hope bringers? and the unity sowers, and the grace givers, and the includers, and the strengtheners, and the growers? It's going to be you. It's going to be me. And if we really want to be a community that exhibits those things, I wonder today what might need to change in us, in me, that God might be able to do some of that work through me and through us. I think we do a fine job I really do, and I'm proud of this church. But I want to do better. I want to keep going. I want to keep growing and changing. I want to be a church that shares joy and strength and peace and hope and love. Anybody walks through those doors. So I'll finish with this question. Are you pre prepared to allow God to change you in such important and intense ways that he might be able to use you for that purpose? Are you ready to allow God to transfigure your life? Let us pray. God, on a mountaintop a long time ago, you shared a glimpse of your coming glory. But in that glimpse was a reminder that people of faith, that we who follow you are not to remain static, that we are to grow and to change. God, we gather together, we lift our hearts to you and ask you to help us. Help us make room within our hearts and our souls and our minds. Make room for you. For joy, for strength, for grace, for peace, for hope, for love, for unity, for growth, for wisdom. Help us to make room for you so that we might be changed and so we might look a little bit more like you tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen.